Hello and welcome to this podcast, Raptor Rambles, brought to you by Raptor Aid, a UK-based charity that focuses on bird of prey conservation and education. I'll be your host, Jimmy Hill, founder of Raptor Aid, and I look forward to sharing lots of interesting things about the world of birds of prey with you. In this episode of Raptor Rambles, we're interviewing none other than legendary scientist and ornithologist Professor Ian Newton. Now, I could probably spend a whole podcast just describing all of the work and achievements that Ian has managed in his years of monitoring and understanding birds, but there's no better way really than letting the great man do it himself. So sit back, enjoy. Right, hello everyone and welcome back to a new series of interviews carried out by myself, Jimmy Hill from Raptor Aid. Hopefully those of you that are new to this may get a chance to go back and have a look at 24 interviews that we did over the lockdown period and they were interviewing a whole host of people that I know personally and then also people that, that I follow uh, based on birds of prey and raptor conservation and it was absolutely wonderful. So I've had a bit of a break from it because I needed it and so now rather than going live on Facebook we are going to record some new interviews. We're going to try and do one every four weeks, maybe every six weeks depending on um, the participants if we're lucky enough to get some people. And I thought I need to start with a biggie to begin with. I need to get a big name on to begin with. And so I'm very, very pleased to introduce to you Ian Newton, OBE, FRS and FRSE after your name. And Ian, welcome, first of all. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Well, thank you, Jimmy. It's nice to be here. Or virtually here, anyway. Virtually, exactly. Yeah. Do, do you do you get introduced now? Excuse my ignorance. Is it doctor or professor, or or is it just Ian Newton? What what is the correct one? Well, doctor or professor would be correct, but I prefer Ian. That's no, that's yeah, that's yeah. fine because I know you're a doctor. I know you've done, a, and we'll come on to the PhD, I'm sure, and your work with that. But then, obviously, I saw that you you were a visiting professor at, uni, at the University of Oxford as well. So I was like, oh, right, okay. But yeah, I I, I figured you'd probably prefer to be called Ian. But there yeah, we go. Just fine. <laughs> I didn't want to uh, put someone's nose out. That's that's fine. Well, thank you for thank you for agreeing to. Uh, to talk to me today. I don't get nervous very often talking to people, and I'm not just saying this now, but I've done a bit of research on you, and I've spoke to mutual friend with Carl, so Carl Jones, Professor Carl Jones the other night, and he was telling me all these wonderful achievements, and, <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, I started to get a bit, <laughs> so. Carl's yeah. got quite a record himself, you know, he's done fantastic things, but. The conservation well, of Mauritius. So, so yeah. that made me even more nervous because Carl said that about you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we'll we'll get into well, it. We're a strong team of mutual admirers, Carl and I. Good. Yeah. Good. That's that's what we like. Well, it was a pleasure <laughs> to interview him, and I'm I'm really excited about this today. Now, I always start the same way with these interviews and touch on your early life. So I know you're originally from Derbyshire. And so if we go back to a young Ian Newton, when he, when he gets into birds, start at the beginning where it all began in your interest in birds and we'll, we'll flow forwards. Well, I was even more scruffy at that age than I am now. And my earliest memories of birds are really with seeing birds in the garden, but also my dad finding bird nests and pointing them out to me and showing me the eggs. And I must have been, uh, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, something like that when I started to walk around the countryside with him. So that, that was the start. And then this was in the 1950s. And at that stage, almost every boy in the village where I was brought up collected bird eggs. So I naturally went into that as well. Nothing very serious, but anyway, it did give me a good knowledge of, of the local birds. Just continuing that for a few years, as you do, till your early teens or something like that. Uh, and that was my introduction to birds. But then I got much more interested in watching them and studying them in a way. And my first real encounters with birds of prey were, we only had in, in our local area, Kestrel and Sparrowhawk at that time. All the others had been eliminated years earlier. I mean, I never saw buzzard till I went out of the area. 
But uh, anyway, I did find kestrel nests and I found sparrowhawk nests. And when I was about 17, I think it was, uh, I made an attempt to find all the sparrowhawks within a certain walking distance of our house, basically. And I found eight nests in one year, uh, which I was uh, quite, I won't say proud about, but I was quite pleased about that. But most of them, all but one, in fact, failed. And uh, I'd climb up to the nest and I'd find broken eggshells in the nest. And I assumed that they'd all been eaten by jays or something or squirrels. But of course, I know now that these were all birds with thin shelled eggs. I still, I collected some of those shells, broken shells, and uh, I, I kept them. And it, indeed, later in life, I was able to show that they were thin. So it was the start of the big organochlorine era. And that was, I think, about 1957. And the following year, I rechecked all those sites and they were all vacant. I couldn't find any sparrowhawks in them at all. And I didn't see sparrowhawks in that area again for, for many years. And their, their, their disappearance immediately followed the introduction of Dieldrin, which was a, a, another organochlorine like DDT. And that was uh, one thing that really demonstrated to me the impact that these chemicals were having on birds of prey. The birds had shown shell thinning and probably in time they would have disappeared from that because they're not producing any young. But Dieldrin was killing them outright, directly, and just wiped that population out within the space of a year. So that was my introduction to sparrowhawks. As you know, I was able to get back to them later in life, but that's, that's another story. Well, 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 yeah, well, definitely we'll come on to that. So was it all, did you always know then that, it's interesting you say about, I, and we'll, we will cover this later on, you say about you went and found all, 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 the, all the known sparrowhawks within walking distance of your home. Is that, that, that sounds to me, having spoken to you briefly before this, that that's a common trait with 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 you. And and when we talk about the sparrowhawk work that you do later on in life, obviously that's the most probably intensive study we know of of a bird of prey that's been done in, in certainly in the UK. So would you say that's that's something that's always been with you? You've always been that fastidious, you know, doing things. As, as well. it, 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 yes, it probably has, because uh, one of the things I've always been interested in, uh, even from childhood, is what determines the numbers of birds. Okay. You know, why, do we, why are they as numerous as they are and not more or less numerous? It, it follows from that, if you've got that sort of interest, that you want to know how many there are in a given area and then go on to monitor them. Finding those eight pairs, of course, entailed covering all the woods in the area, some of which were coniferous, others were, were deciduous or bits of scrub and so on. But all the, it was obvious that all the sparrowhawk nests, they were all in woods that had some conifers in, although they do nest in broadleaf woods as well, but they require woods of a particular structure. And that's one of the things I learned at an early stage. You're not gonna get them in every wood. Yeah. They've got to be fairly dense, yet uh, the wood has but uh, open enough to enable the birds to fly through fairly easily. But yes, finding what there is in an area and monitoring how the numbers change over time, that's always been a, a fascination of mine. Do you, do you think that's cha changed or is changing in, in terms of field workers, raptor monitors, as we're talking about, obviously birds of prey specifically, do you, do you think you don't get those same people that monitor the, an area properly, if, if that's the right word. It's more uh, uh, piecemeal information coming through. So a, a good example of that is another chap that I work with, I monitor peregrines with a chap in Northeast Wales. And he has for 40 years monitored around Ruaban Mountain, the birds, but mainly peregrines. He hasn't missed a beat with it. Whereas some, if I take, use myself as an example, I'm a bit more, I flip, you know, I go and help someone with ospreys here. And I don't, I can't say that I've got a solid study area that I know inside out. Do you think that's something that's dying out really? No, I don't think it's dying out. Uh, of course, it, what you do depends on your interests and how much you want to devote your time to finding out everything in an area. I mean, it's much more profitable if you want a sample of 20 nests to find to, to just visit the suitable places and find them. 
and then go on monitoring them every year. If you want to find everything in a set area, it's much more time consuming because you've got to search a lot of ground that you, you know in your heart you're unlikely to find anything, but you've got to be sure. But I think nowadays there are far more people thoroughly monitoring raptor populations than there ever was in the past. I mean, the raptor groups dotted around the country, there's some fantastic people working in those groups that, that cover the same ground year after year and attempt to find everything and continue monitoring this. So I think that that interest in raptors has grown enormously over the past 20, 30 years, and they do a, they do a great job. They, they do. A lot of those guys do what I was paid to do for probably 30 years of my life. So I have great admiration for, for all, all, the, all the raptor workers today. So going on from obviously your childhood, going to let's move to university. Which which university did you get? Did you go? To? Well, uh, I went to two universities. The first one was Bristol, where I got my first degree, and the second one was Oxford, where I did a a, a DPhil, as they call it in Oxford, plus a postdoc, and so I had a total of six years in Oxford. Well, going to Bristol was great. That was uh, it's a lovely city and a, a lovely university. A lot smaller then than it, it, in the late 50s than it is now. I think there are only about 8,000 students in total. Uh, but that was uh, a nice area to be for me because uh, there are lots of wooded land round about. And uh, I found sparrowhawks there. They were still there, eliminated in North Derbyshire where I lived. But uh, I still found some in, in uh, Somerset. Uh, and there are also buzzards there, which I'd never had any experience with in my life before. So yeah. that was uh, interesting times for me. What What did you do? What So what was your first degree on? What did you cover? At yeah, zoology. Zoology, yeah. Yes, yeah. And uh, my, my whole interest in life, uh, as far as birds were concerned, was finches. Yes. And that, uh, I, had, I developed that interest because my dad was keen on canaries and he used to have a shed full of Yorkshire canaries. <laughs> oh, yeah. Red and showed and so on. And anyway, when I, I got to about, uh, 15 or 16 he allowed me a little bit of space in his canary room to keep British finches as I said I don't know how to keep canaries I wasn't really interested in them but if I could keep you know uh, goldfinches or bullfinches or whatever it was that, that, that'd be great I'd enjoy oh, doing yeah. that and which I did but that gave me uh, an interest in finches and a knowledge of finches and I started to look at them in the surrounding area I used to go out and see what they were feeding on and collect those plants and bring them back to give to my finches and watch how they dealt with them and so on but that eventually that led to a, a PhD a, a, in Oxford and that was uh, uh, well, I started doing the PhD on uh, comparison of the ecology of different species their feeding habits the foods that they ate and how they dealt with different foods and so on. Uh, all the finches in a particular area, which was Whiteham Estate, where uh, yeah. those of us doing bird work in Oxford, we all worked in Whiteham at that time. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, so I'm able to keep that going for a PhD. But at that time, there was a really big problem in Southeast England caused by bullfinches, which uh, had increased in numbers and were eating or stripping commercial orchards, stripping the trees of buds, of flower buds. So bullfinches are removing the buds, then there's no fruit. Yes. And this was a major problem for the fruit growing industry in Essex, Kent, Berkshire, and Malvern, Worcestershire, all those, all the areas where fruit was, was grown. So I was able to look at that to some extent while I was doing a PhD, but I also get a postdoc, a grant to work on that because it was a, a major problem. And so I, I had a postdoc looking at bullfinches. And one of the main interesting findings, I thought, was that the damage in fruit orchards wasn't at the same level every year. It varied according to the availability of wild foods for bullfinches. And the key food plant involved uh, at that time was ash. Okay. And ash around that time was cropping biennially every second year you got an ash seed crop and when there was a good crop of ash seed that kept bullfinches going right through the winter into the following spring before they moved on to buds and in those years there was relatively little damage in orchards but in the intervening years when the ash crop failed then their winter food ran out early and they switched much earlier to feeding on buds January time yeah. and so the damage in fruit orchards was much greater 
So it was the discovery of that biennial pattern and the way to control bullfinches, which uh, was an interesting part of that, that study. But one of the questions was why bullfinches suddenly increased massively and remained at quite a high level, causing serious damage for 10, 15 years or so. And then they suddenly collapsed again. And it turned out that the big increase in bullfinches coincided with the decline in sparrowhawks in the countryside. Okay. And they, the numbers then remained high for a number of years, as I mentioned, and then they collapsed again. The, the collapse in numbers coincided yet again with the recovery of sparrowhawks. So there was a, a coincidence there, but I don't think uh, it was because sparrowhawks were killing bullfinches and controlling their numbers that way. Yeah. I think it acted in a quite different way in that while there are sparrowhawks around hunting them, bullfinches tend to stay in thick cover near hedgerows or scrub, and you never used to see them at very far, only a few meters from scrub. But during the absence period for sparrowhawks, they'd wander much further out into the countryside. And I used to see bullfinches then, while I was in Oxford, in the middle of open fields, a situation you never see them now, and in flocks, if food was available there. So I think what had happened is you remove the predator, and bullfinches get braver and braver, and they're prepared to feed yeah. further away from cover. So that leads to a big increase in the amount of food which is available to them. And it's that, the, the rate rise in accessible food, which increased the population. And of course, when sparrowhawks returned, they went back, retreated to the hedgerows and woods and so on, and that vastly reduced the food available to them. So that's my story on the increase <laughs> in well, no, it's true. There's the no, biggest... no evidence for it whatsoever, except coincidence in time. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Did you, uh, uh, there's several things have come into my head now while you're talking. Uh, one that I mustn't forget, and actually a little birdie did tell me this, and it's quite, uh, it's quite a coincidence that you, we got onto it so early, that you're, I'm going to talk, we're going to talk about books and sparrowhawks and other things in more detail, so people are going to really understand what an expert you are on certain things. But a little birdie told me that you're also an expert on apples as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And so well, uh, it's coincidental that you mentioned orchards straight away. But yeah, I was told to... Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an offshoot of bullfinches, really. <laughs> when I was working on bullfinches, I, I obviously visited quite a large number of fruit growers uh, and got, got to know some of them very well. I always thought, what a fantastic life these guys had. They usually had a, a lovely environment. They lived in the, you know, nice farmhouse, nice garden and so on, in the middle of orchard land. Yeah. which was, you know, a great thing to do. And apples were very much in demand at that time. So they were, they were not poor, these guys. They were reasonably well off. And I thought, well, if I never get a PhD, this is the sort of life I could do. I don't know how I'd get by the farm, but anyway, that's a great thing to do. But that, because of that, I, I, I developed a big interest in apple varieties, different varieties. And uh, for a time, I had a fairly large garden and we, we could grow... I don't know, 30 or so different varieties in the garden. At some point, a fruit farm became, came on the market for sale near Wisbeach. I was living near Huntingdon at the time. And uh, decided to buy, sell up the house and buy this. Because it was like, only 16 acres with a house with it. And we, we moved there as a family. I became a commercial fruit grower for a time. But of course, I kept my job on sparrowhawks and other things. And this yeah. was a spare time job. <laughs> but we were producing something like, I suppose, about 200 tons of apples and pears every year. It gave me a, a totally different life in the commercial world, selling these apples. We used to sell them to markets in uh, mainly Nottingham, Sheffield, Manchester and other places. But it, it was a, a totally different life and so on. And uh, I enjoyed doing that. We did that for about 15 years before we eventually sold up to somebody who wanted to buy it from them. Oh, fantastic. Oh, there you go. Yes. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Fed that into me. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> talking about books then, talking about finches. So I'm just going to, and, and stop me if I miss one. You are, I think it's easy to say, um, 
a prolific author in terms of ornithology and it's quite incredible. Now I, I'll try and add a date to this, but apologies if I get it wrong, Ian. So Finches was your first one in 1972. Then it was Population Ecology of Raptors, 1979. The Sparrowhawk, 1986. Yeah. Lifetime Reproduction in Birds, 1989. Population Limitation in Birds, 1998. The Speciation and Biogeography of Birds, 2003. Bird Ecology and Conservation, 2004. The Migration Ecology of Birds, 2008. Bird Migration, 2010. Bird Populations, 2013. Farming and Birds, 2017. And then the most recent one, Uplands and Birds, 2020. Have I got them all? Uh, I, I, think you've got, yeah, I think you must have got them all. <laughs> I'm not sure about the dates, but that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, um, that was more just to give people two of those, idea. Are, two of those are edited volumes. That, well, yeah. I mean, that is that's that's quite something. That that really is quite quite something. We'll we'll talk about maybe writing books in between talk, talking about. So let's start with finches. I know I, this is raptor aid, but it doesn't matter really. Yeah, it's, a it's a privilege to have you on anyway. And so the the book finches. That that sounds like it was inevitable. That was a it was a poison monograph, was it, or was it a new naturalist? No, it was a new naturalist, right. and uh, that that really. Well, I got into that obviously from my PhD and from the yeah. postdoc work. And yes, I just pulled it all together in that book together with obviously reading what literature I could get hold of on Finches as well, which was a great help. And during the, the writing of the book, as with, with all the books I've done, you discover, you know, new things to take you off at a tangent, yeah. <laughs> working on things. And that was, uh, it was really crossbills that I got interested in, in a big okay. way at that time. I was able to get some like new story on crossbill eruptions and so on that was published for the first time really in, in the book but yes that's that's the, that was the result of phd and subsequent six years work really so obviously um we've got to we'll move on then to um don't worry i'm not going to go through all of these but we will touch on we will touch on sort of my we'll definitely touch on populations and migrations because i know that's a massive interest of you and a big big part of what you've done but population ecology of raptors how did that come about or do we need to rewind to the sparrowhawk work um that you, you started? no i was working on sparrowhawks at, at that time and other raptors i did quite a bit of work with uh, the Northumberland ringing group as it was at that time uh, led by Brian Little on Merlins in Northumberland and also uh, on Peregrines with Richard Merns in fact Richard did virtually all the work on that I must say in South Scotland and also Red Kites I had some experience of working with uh, Peter Davis uh, Red Kites and Buzzards and Ravens we worked on in, in Central Wales for a period that gave me a fair cross-section of knowledge on raptors in different parts of Britain. There was also the scientific literature and the idea of that book was to try and provide a synthesis of thinking on, mainly my thinking I must say, but uh, uh, on, on raptor populations and how they're limited, regulated, the factors that influence their breeding and survival and so on. The, the aim anyway was to try and pull together what was known uh, in the Western world about raptors and make it available to other raptor researchers. It took off that book, really. I think it, 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 I was fortunate in that it just hit a period of major interest in raptors because that was the, we were just getting out of the organochlorine era and around the world money was made available from conservation bodies, governments and so on to study raptors because they were so some of them were so badly affected by organochlorine. So there was a, a massive growth in interest in those birds. And just by chance and by luck, that book appeared at the right time. Well, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about it here, I've got it written down as the, the year I've got is 1979. Yeah. I think it's still as important to this day, which is quite incredible, really. Like 40, well, no, yeah, it's 40, mm. 50 years on it's 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 quite it's quite incredible now you you mentioned there and, and before i forget you you mentioned about how it was your a lot of it was your thinking you, you were synthesizing literature but it's your thinking if we get i just want to go back a, a, a little step and, and i made a note about asking you about your influences 
And there's one name I've written down here that, again, I, I won't lie, I was told to add. Someone said, oh, you must ask Ian about this chap. So I've got to ask you about David Lack, because obviously people, I know from my own experience of working with, with people, you know, they, they have an influence on how you think when yeah, you're sure, yeah. working on something. So just touch on, touch on David Lack. Who, uh, and yeah, well, David Lack had more influence on me, I think, as an ornithologist than anybody else i read his book before i went to the he was my supervisor during my phd period and i read his main books before i, I went there well his books just made so much sense to me i got a lot from being at the Edinburgh institute while he was there he, he was interesting really in that he'd uh, the only time you'd see him would be at coffee breaks he'd, he'd come down and have coffee and he would the conversation there are only uh, you know half a dozen or so there half a dozen to ten during the the time I was there. So it was a small group and it was in a separate building from the main zoology department. So we were together all the time as a group. And uh, he'd come to coffee and the conversation would centre on whatever he happened to be working on or thinking about at the time, because he wrote quite a number of books all the time I was there. He was writing books. I mean, we sometimes thought, wouldn't it be nice to talk about something we want to talk about? <laughs> anyway, that never happened. But in retrospect, it, that was a fantastic learning experience as well, because you could see how he thought and how he got to grips with subjects and thought them through and so on, and, uh, worked out how somebody was wrong and somebody else was more on the right lines and so on. So that was a, a tremendous experience. And uh, yes, I gained a lot from him. He was my, if I were to have one ornithological hero in Britain, it would be him. I think he's generally recognised as being one of the greatest ornithologists in the world of the, the 20th century, and certainly in Britain. That's but there was a second person that I also mentioned from the Edinburgh Institute, and that was a chap called Reg Moreau, whose field of interest was African birds. And he wrote a book called The, uh, the Avifaunas of Africa, and another one called, uh, I think, The Palearctic African Migration System. He also was interested in migration. But his main influence really was on, for me, was on writing, my writing style. Because he was a, the editor of IBIS, the journal IBIS, for a number of years. And he was an absolutely unbelievable editor. He's the sort of person you could give, or I could give, a page of text to. And he'd just take his blue pencil and reduce it to three or four lines. Everything would be there, said absolutely succinctly and perfectly. So it was his editorial skills and writing skills that I think I learned an awful lot from as well. Well, that's, I mean, that's really interesting you mentioned that because something else that came out of a couple of conversations I've had in the run up to this chatting to you is how good you are at succinctly putting the science there on a piece of paper there's no airs and graces to it, it it's there for for all to see and and also you might disagree i don't know how you produce work and scientific work that a lot of people can digest because i i try and read scientific papers on certain subjects and i'll be honest with you some of it i might as well just not be read because it doesn't go in but a, a few people have said to me when it comes to your writing Ian it's just easy to digest what well, that's Reg Moreau that's the influence of Reg Moreau I think but I, I think scientific writing has got worse over the years I must say at the time I started off oh it would be first writing in the 60s I suppose the journals had editors who really edited they took a lot of trouble over it They're, in a way that people these days just wouldn't have time to do. Editors don't have that, that amount of time on their hands. Nobody does it as a full-time job. It's always as an aside. Yeah. And one consequence, I think, is that the standard of writing in scientific journals is much worse than it was 30, 40 years ago. And there's a lot more jargon and a lot more repetition in papers. Well, I, I, sometimes... You know, I, I read a paper now, I read the abstract, and then I read the paper and I think, now, how on earth did he draw that conclusion from the paper? I'm not sure that at all. You know, you've got to look very carefully, much more carefully now at papers than you had to. Yeah. Well, we, so we need more blue pencil. 
That's basically. We need more blue pencil people. Yes. <laughs> brilliant. We're not going to get them though because no, well, those people are very rare, and they have to be people with time on their hands, uh, or paid to do the job. The scientists well, do the editing now; they just wouldn't possibly be able to edit in the way that somebody like Red Moreau did. Well, actually, talking about editing, it, it reminds me of, of something that um, we talked about pre when we when we had a brief catch up before we did this about um, some of the other p past people that I've interviewed. So we mentioned Ruth Ting, Dr. Ruth Tingey, Eugene yeah. Potapov. So yeah. these are fantastic raptor biologists in their own right, and they have a link to you as well, don't they, Ian? Um, well, they do, they, well, you mentioned those two, and uh, when we were chatting beforehand, you mentioned several others, but they're people that, uh, well, I, I either supervise them at, in their raptor work, or I act as examiners to their PhD theses, and that's true for, for Ruth and, uh, and Eugene Potapov, as you mentioned there. So does you, does that where is that where you get your chance to get your blue your blue pencil out? You, I can imagine you're quite a nice person to to work oh. with. Uh, just having met you. Well, I do, I do usually give them a list of suggestions afterwards on things they might like to rewrite or change or uh, express differently or something like that. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, it just, I mean, it just adds another layer really to to your <laughs> skills. <laughs> so. Okay, let's go to 1986. We've got to talk about the Sparrowhawk, uh, the, the, the poison monograph that you produced. Talk about how you got into the study, first of all, of, of Sparrowhawks. Obviously, you've talked about your early years, and then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go, from, go from there. Okay, uh, well, the Sparrowhawk, I, I, at the time I was working for the Nature Conservancy. The first job I had uh, in leaving Oxford was the Nature Conservancy, as it was then, in Scotland, it's now Scottish Natural Heritage. Uh, I was to work on waterfowl, and I worked on uh, grey lag geese, uh, well, uh, and pink-footed geese as, as uh, crop damages. And also I looked at the ducks, so there's a big colony of ducks, about a thousand pairs nested at that time on Loch Leven, on an island in Loch Leven. So I looked at the ducks in the summer and the geese in the winter. But uh, I've been doing that for about three or four years, and then, the decision was made that the Nature Conservancy should uh, get more information on sparrowhawks because they were declining rapidly and they've been affected by organochlorines to the same degree that peregrines had. But we knew quite a bit about peregrines because of Derek's, Derek Radcliffe's work, but we knew much less about sparrowhawks. And so that gave me, obviously my ears pricked up when I heard about sparrowhawks going out there lasting interest from, from childhood, really. And anyway, to cut a long story short, that gave me an opportunity to work on sparrowhawks. And at that time, I got to hear of a forester in Dumfrieshire who was finding quite a lot of nests locally. This was Herman Ostrosnik, his name was, now dead, sadly. But he was a fantastic field man. And I got to know him. Uh, through another colleague, John Young, who worked for the Nature Conservancy. So I started to work on sparrowhawks in Dumfrieshire, where they were at that time, which was uh, 1971. They were they'd recovered to some extent from organochlorines, and they were present there in big numbers. And in that first year, I had the help of Herman, who was a forest worker, and also another local ornithologist called Willie Murray, again, long since dead unfortunately, but the three of us together operated and we found more than a hundred sparrowhawk nests in one season. It was a tough season, but yeah. uh, it was a great start. There were two things really that made me realize that this could be a, a, you know, a good thing to work on. One is that you could get, I could get samples that were big enough for statistical analysis, because the main problem with birds of prey at the time, and still is to some extent, it's very difficult for an individual to get enough nests to, for a statistical sample. And most of the early work on raptors, the samples were just too small to do much with. But if you get 100 nests, that's, well, even if you get 50 nests, that's a good sample. And the second thing was that I tried various ways of catching them in the, that first year, first two years, and I got a method that worked. Once I got a way of catching the birds, I knew that that would open up 
a whole new line of investigation on birds of prey where you could follow hopefully follow the same individuals year after year on the same territories year after year so those two things together the sample size and the ability to catch and handle them was uh, there was the breakthrough as far as as i was concerned so this was so sparrowhawk by this point sparrowhawks had, had they pretty much made a recovery from the well they had in they had in this part of the world in dumfries but that dumfries at that time was a a mainly pastoral county uh, so there wasn't a lot of pesticide use so they never I don't think they declined to the, the same degree as they did over other parts of the country. So they maintained good numbers there. But by 1971, you know, if you get to the level of 100, that one you know, small group of people could find in a year, they were more or less back to normal. Well, they were, they were bigger than normal, really, the numbers were. What, what, sort, what sort of territory, what sort of size was, was the area that you were covering with? Oh, uh, quite a distance it would be uh, 50 kilometers north to south and maybe 20 to 30 kilometers east to west but it's not the size of there it's the number of woodlands in it there was one big forest which had i been on my own i wouldn't have covered but because herman worked in that forest he, he was sort of covering that and he found all the nests in that forest that was a the forest of a spelled a e yeah. Uh, and then there are still sparrowhawks there and other birds of prey. Uh, but most of the, uh, of the woods were in the valleys and they were smaller. And there's a lot of conifer woods as well. So it's an ideal environment uh, for sparrowhawks. Yeah. And the, 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 the duration of the study was it how many? 27 years? or? Well, it was yeah, 27, 28 years in total. But after 10 years, I moved away from annandale where that was i gave up on annandale that was just too i was on my own more or less by then and i just wanted to continue monitoring a smaller area which was the esk valley it, which is is further east centered on the towns of langham and canonby mm -hmm. and i was fortunate there in meeting another chap who was interested in sparrow that's mac hodson he helped me a lot there did fantastic help over more than 20 years and he's also very good in the field so I've, I've benefited enormously from being able to work with people who are yeah. good and keen. <laughs> yeah. If you think about the, the, the whole study, was, was there anything that came out of it that now, looking back now, you think, I'm really pleased with what we managed to understand there? Or were there, were there any real highlights for you? That yes, uh, there the was. Uh, one, the first highlight really was only partly dependent on me and partly dependent on a number of other people scattered around the country who were looking, doing the same as I was, uh, trying to find all the sparrowhawks in a given area. There's, there was the Northumbrian ringing group uh, led by Brian Little. Uh, there was another forester chap in uh, Aberdeenshire and there was uh, Doug Weir in Deeside. Various people and, and uh, Ted Green in Windsor dotted around the country with various people. When we were pulling all that data together, uh, it turned out that uh, sparrowhawk nests within continuous woodland were always regularly spaced, it, but, but the, the distance between the nests varied enormously from one area to another. In some areas, they were only about 0.6 of a kilometre apart, 0.4 of a mile apart. In other areas, they could be two miles apart. You know, big variation across the country. Yeah. And we discovered that that is linked to the food supply. The more small birds were in an area, the greater the density sparrowhawks would nest in that area. So there was a clear link between density in continuous woodland and prey supply. So to get that by comparing different areas was a sort of breakthrough way in that it indicated the importance of food supply in determining sparrowhawk numbers and densities. So that was one breakthrough. The other breakthroughs really, I think, came from ringing the birds, trapping them, ringing them, and following the same individuals year after year. And that uh, gave me enough data to look how the survival of the birds and their breeding success changed during the course of their lives. And it turned out that, I mean, there were very few species that that data were available to them for at that time, partly because Birds hadn't been studied that long 
you know, yeah. follow them through their lives. But it turned out that the survival of the birds started off in their first year of being quite low. And then it gradually improved up to middle life, the annual survival, and then declined again, due presumably to senescence. So there was a, an upward trend and then a downward trend of it performing at their peak, breeding best and surviving best in midlife. Yeah. Uh, so that was, a, that was a, something new. Uh, but the second thing also depended on uh, having ringed birds, and that was following the same individuals year after year, eventually we, we, we tracked birds through their entire lives. At the end of the study, I had the lifetime reproductive success of a num total number of young they'd reared during their lives for exactly 200 different female sparrowhawks. And that was, uh, uh, I think, the first time anybody had pulled that sort of stuff together. Uh, the data existed, but I think nobody had thought of looking at it at that time. That was interesting because it showed that a very small proportion of the breeding females in any one generation produced the bulk of the young in the next yeah. generation. These were females that obviously that lived to be a reasonable age. Yes. Uh, not going to do it if they're dying after one year. I had uh, the, 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 my star performer that, that produced more young than anybody else was a bird that uh, produced 24 young. Doesn't sound many actually in a 10 year lifespan. Yeah. Uh, but most sparrowhawks, uh, if they produced any young, produced between three or five in their lifetime. Well, was that yeah. the size of a sparrowhawk brood? And most individuals only raised one brood during their life. They'd have other broods, but they'd fail for some reason or another. But anyway, that was lifetime reproductive success was another. It's fascinating. In, in, terms of, in terms of getting that sort of data back, back then, so that you're basing that on, as you said, trapping adults, ringing them, and then is it re-trapping them? or Re-trapping re them, yes. Yeah, you've got to re-trap them in the, in the following years to be sure it's the same individual. But we did discover another way uh, to identify individuals. You often find molded feathers near the nest. I think every raptor, picks, every raptor worker picks these feathers up, and I was no exception, picked these up and realised that the patterning on these feathers varied. It turned out that it varied from bird to bird. Any individual bird would produce feathers of exactly the same design or same patterning from year to year, but that will be different from another bird. So the, the feather patterns on the, the wing feathers and the tail feathers were as good an identification of uh, an identifier of individuals as human fingerprints would be for people. But you had to have equivalent figures of uh, feathers. So you you've got to have if you comparing the primary feathers, you've got to compare primary one with primary one, primary yes. two with primary two the following year. So for each bird, uh, we, we collected all the feathers we could each year and saved them. And files full of sparrowhawk feathers. It meant that if there was a bird we couldn't catch for some reason, if we could get a feather from it, yeah. we had to search through the collection and find out if it was any individual that we already know. But that sounds quite a simple matter, but you have to remember that some birds change their territories from year to year. Yeah, yeah. So you've often, you know, you've got to go through quite a lot of feathers and you've got to get the exact matching feather. No point well, in having the wrong primary or something. Well, I mean, that sounds like incredible field work. It really does. And the, the reason I asked is obviously technology has advanced dramatically now. And so, for instance, I'm involved in a, in a project with goshawks where we're colouring in the, the, the juveniles and we're using camera traps obviously on nests yeah. and, and during the winter months on plucking posts as well. Do you wish that you had some of this technology, satellite trackers and, and uh, GPS tags and stuff like that or are you quite old school in the way now I'm quite proud and pleased about we well uh, the, the, th the thing about the new technology of course is as you've indicated it does allow you to do things that you couldn't do before and sparrowhawks are sedentary in britain so uh, you know i never felt the need to have to follow them on migration or anything like that but during the 70s radio tracking came in 
and we did do some on sparrow ports with the help of a of Robert Kenwood, who was uh, uh, building his own radio transmitters at the time and had done it with Sparrowhawks, and he came up and gave us a hand. We fitted, uh, this was Mick Marquis and I, fitted radio transmitters to uh, a number of Sparrowhawks and followed them around the local area. So we learned where they hunted and so on. And that was revelationary, really, to us, because with the nest being regularly spaced, we assumed that the birds had fairly well-defined territories and they were dividing up the woodland into their territories. Yeah. But it turned out when we put radios on them that this was true uh, for the males at the start of the breeding season. They did have territories within the woodlands, but later in the year when they were feeding young, they ranged more widely and they overlapped more widely. But the females always overlapped more widely and flew much longer distances to get their prey than the males did. We had one female in uh, a forest that would travel five miles outside the forest to low ground to get prey and then drag it back to the forest again to feed the young. So they were, they were ranging over the countryside in a way that we'd never dreamt they were doing before. There's, there's an interesting, it's, it's funny how, again, these, these links come in. You mentioned a name before in a study, and I, before I forget about it, I want to touch on, uh, last week or a week ago, I went and I was fortunate enough to, yeah, it was last week, I was fortunate enough to go and do some work on uh, honey buzzards. Part of it, I had to sit and watch an area for a bird coming in. We were trying to locate a late nest. Anyway, I was sat with a chap, and his surname deceives me now I can't remember it but he worked with Ted Green on the Sparrowhawks in Windsor Park and so I think I probably missed about 500 no I didn't miss five honey buzzards because we just talked about this we were talking solid yeah. about Sparrowhawks now he told me something really interesting and that I thought was fascinating and you might say right or wrong Ian he talked about they'd done some work on the Sparrowhawks they were monitoring the nests and found that in some nests, the offspring, the, the, the youngsters, had different fathers, paternal fathers. Yeah, that, that's right, yes. That was some work done at Nottingham University with the help of uh, David Parkin. And we did find that not all sparrowhawks had the father that they thought they had. In a, in a brood, you could get the, the young in a brood would, could have had more than one father among them. It wasn't that common. But I think it would turn out to be, uh, we didn't get a, a large sample, but it was something like 15% of the young were not parented by the male that was attending that nest. So that, that was uh, interesting as I well. Just found that, yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, I yeah, never thought about it. So it was, I found it fascinating when, when Alan was telling me about this. I was like, wow, that's... Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's absolutely, yeah. That's absolutely yes, fascinating yeah. stuff. Okay, well, go, going back, going back to technology, migration. Obviously, you've written a couple of books, at least on migration. And I know you mentioned to me before you were you, that's your current work on the desk at the moment. How did that come about? Where, where was the interest in in, in migration? Well, you you've spent most of your life working on a sedentary species, yeah, like yeah. say sparrowhawks, <laughs> and then yeah, yeah. yeah. How did the migration? Well, it came it came earlier because when I was. Uh, uh, in Oxford, David Lack was interested in migration at the time. He was writing his uh, results of his radar studies on bird migration. That was a big technological advance to study bird migration. He was writing that up at the time. And he did actually make a start on writing a book on bird migration. But then out of the blue, a book on the subject was published by Jean Dorst in France that covered much the same ground that David Lack would have covered and so he dropped that idea and went on to something else but it it did mean that we were talking about bird migration for quite some time there but I got interested in it uh, when I was working on finches and looking at the movements of crossbills we had a crossbill invasion while I was in Oxford so I started me on crossbills but also I, I needed to get into migration for that finch book you know it was able to use the ring recoveries of the BTO and uh, analyze those to write the migration section in that book. So that was my 
introduction to to bird migration so again does it excite you then the the development of gps tags and this sort of thing in, in understanding oh yes yeah yeah that's incredible because you can put a tag on a bird and follow it anywhere in the world it goes well in the past uh, you were relying on ring recovery much of the world you couldn't get any ring recoveries from you, you knew the birds went or you had some idea that the birds went there but you could never get a recovery so it's a very patchy picture of bird migration you were getting where they went <clears throat> but the thing about satellite tagging is that you can follow the birds day to day on their journey so you know the route they take you can look to see whether they've been affected by the weather to any degree and you can see how far they travel on different days how long they take over, over the whole journey and over each day's flight and so on it's a, amazing detail you can get now yeah. And of course, as the years have gone by, uh, the number of kinds of tags you can get to put on birds have increased. For example, you get you can easily get something now to fit on a seabird's leg. And that's it's just a wetness indicator. It just tells you whether the bird's feet are in water or they're not. But that's quite useful to know that if you're tracking a bird day to day, because you know if it's, if it's resting on the water or if it's flying and, uh, and how long it's resting in the water. You can get depth recorders that tell you whether the bird's diving and feeding. So you get all that information on a day-to-day -day basis from individual birds. I mean, that's, that really opens a whole new field of investigation that 20 years ago would never have dreamt would be possible. Yeah. All that information is flooding in. Now. It, it's very easy for people doing that sort of work to be absolutely swamped with data. But of course, you've got to have some fundamental questions in your mind beforehand and direct your work to answer those questions rather than just being swamped by the input of data yeah i mean i'm one of the one of the reasons i love the technology so much is a bit more of a general and a, a very very simple thing is because it being someone who spends a lot of time trying to educate people about birds of prey and just enthuse people is it for me it's opened up this whole new world of, of getting people hooked and interested into the lives of birds of prey and if it's specifically birds of prey obviously that we focus on you know the fact that I've got an app on my mobile phone an animal tracker app where I can turn it on and I can look at what certain golden eagles are doing on in the cairngorms and stuff like that I think it's just and when I show this to people who really don't have any interest in birds of prey probably bore most of them but some of them are really it gets them really interested and yeah it adds a, a completely new sphere so i think it's yeah it's, it's wonderful I'm, I'm conscious of time but um i'm gonna keep pressing on and keep rattling out some questions because i want to stick with the the book theme farming and bird obviously i'm you know now ian that i'm a farmer's son um and so two books that you've you've done farming and birds and uplands and birds the most recent one um, let's quickly touch on farming and birds, if we can quickly touch on it. How have you seen bird populations change in, in the UK based on modern and, and new farming techniques and the way farming's advanced in the recent years? Well, well in, in, a, in a nutshell, uh, every, almost everything on farmland has declined drastically, pretty, pretty dramatically anyway, over the last 50 years or so, mainly from the 1970s. I've always had an interest in farming. I spent a lot of time as a kid on farms and, and I learned quite a lot about, well, you absorb that sort of knowledge, if you, as you, you know, if you, you grew up on a farm. The interest for me was working out exactly what had caused the decline in different species. And of course, it varies from species to species. But almost all the changes that we've seen in agriculture over the last 50 years or so, almost all of them have had really adverse effects on one species or another and that collectively has led to the decline in farmland birds uh, well just to give you one example for example the, the the introduction of herbicides before they came in every cereal field was full of weeds as well as cereals and uh, not very good for farmers but fantastic for farmland birds uh, they fed on the seeds finches particularly where, where the weeds as they were growing in the crops but once the crop was harvested of course the seed was on the ground and the, the stubbles in, in my 
childhood were not ploughed over winter, they were left over yeah. winter and yeah. ploughed and re-sown again in spring. So the stubble fields were rich in seeds, spilled grain and spilled weed seeds. A lot of those seeds, of course, were incorporated in the soil when the land was ploughed. But the result of that was that every time a farmer ploughed or harrowed a field the following spring or whenever, loads of new fresh seeds were turned to the soil surface. So there was a constant supply of seeds on arable farmland all year, really. Yeah. And that supported huge populations of farm and birds. What happened then, of course, was that herbicides came in, did away with really valuable food plants for finches, but also it allowed farmers to plough the field in the autumn and, and resow them in autumn. So any seeds on the ground were ploughed under. And the lack of seeding of, of weeds on farmland over a number of years led to the gradual depletion of the seed bank in the soil. Yeah. But if a farmer ploughs a field now, there's no weed seeds coming to the surface in the way they used to be. So you don't get huge flocks of thousands of linnets, chaffinches, greenfinches feeding on freshly ploughed fields in the way you did in the 50s and 60s and so on. And uh, from the data available, I was able to calculate while working on this book that the, the seed supply of farmland finches have decreased by about 97% within a 50-year period. That seeds in the soil, the seed bank in the soil, and grain spilled on the, the soil surface. So that's a massive reduction in the food supply of seed-eating birds, finches and bunnies. So it's not surprising that their populations have declined. And that, that's just one aspect, that's just seed-eaters. Yeah, and I, I suppose growing up on a farm, we, we only have a small, small area of land we farm, and, and luckily my dad's quite chilled out and lets me take over the running of it but he does have a little dig at me he had a dig at me the other day because we've got a rough patch down the drive that's full of thistles and to him that's that's not productive no but i said to him i said you go down there and watch the goldfinches on them thistles at the moment there's lots of goldfinches and it's the most wonderful thing to watch sit there and watch the goldfinches feeding on on the on the the teasel and stuff it's it's wonderful and and that's coming from someone who's obsessed with raptors, you know, watching goldfinches. So, so yeah, it is wonderful. But that his my dad's mentality is, you know, as he's been brought up from a young boy farming, we'd have the, top, the topper would be on the back of the tractor, and those thistles would have been long gone. And, yes, yeah. Uh, well, I think I think farmers, the farmers I knew in the 1950s, had exactly the same attitude as your, your father, and that's perfectly reasonable. But they didn't have the means to get rid of everything in the way that later came along I and mean, they didn't have the herbicides available for yeah. a start or the equipment that would have done the job yeah. and it was the the chemicalization of farming that allowed them to do stuff that they couldn't have done before or that made things worthwhile for them that wasn't worthwhile before yeah. and of course they had massive funding from government in the form of grants and subsidies and so on yeah which yeah. again enabled them to invest and to do things. I mean, it was, it was great. The idea was to increase food production in this country. And they did that with a vengeance, really. They were very successful at it, but we lost a lot of, well, we lost a lot of biodiversity. We also lost a lot of soil in the process as well. So move it, just quickly touching on your newest book then, we'll give that a plug, Uplands and Birds. How, how you, obviously you spent time in, in the Upland, extensive, periods in, in, in the uplands. In a nutshell, if you need to coin that phrase again, what, what sort of things did you, you come out with with the, the, the state of birds in, in the uplands of Britain? The book looks at different aspects of land use and how they've changed in the uplands. In the uplands, there's, there's four sort of major land uses, as you'll know. There's, there's hill farming or sheep farming, as it is now. There's forestry, plantation forestry, grouse moors, and there's also in northwest Scotland, there's deer forest as well, which is, as you know, is open land with, with red deer. And they're, they're all managed differently and they all have different impacts on birds. And the idea in this book was to look at how these different forms of land use influence bird populations and the impacts they've had as they've got more intensive over recent years. And uh, sheep farming, for example, has got, well, as you know, got extremely intensive towards the end of the century and that uh, caused massive reductions in birds on sheep walk 
uh, and disappearance of heather from many areas and so on so yeah. that's just just one aspect to mention the, obviously the you, you touched on the grouse moors as well and that's that's something that's a, a, a really hot topic at the moment and certainly anyone who, who got a real interest in, in birds of prey in terms of grouse moors for other species you, you wade in birds and so on what have you seen have you seen that they are advantageous that they're, they're a good oh d definitely yes well i mean there's no question that the predators on grouse moor do have an impact uh, on grouse and also on other ground nesting birds the, the main predators though really are the ones that owners can legally control animals like foxes I think fox probably has a bigger impact than anything else, followed by crows. And if you can get those two down, you can have a favourable impact on other on ground nesting birds. These days, it well, I found it very difficult to see waders producing young successfully, lapwing, curlew, or whatever, anywhere except on land that is kingkeepered. So predator control, uh, particularly as I mentioned. The, foxes and crows is having a beneficial impact on these birds and without control of at least those two animals I don't think much would remain in the way of ground nesting birds anywhere really under present densities of foxes and crows particularly foxes. I have to ask you about uh, raptor persecution then we'll quickly we'll touch on it. What's your opinion obviously from the 50s to, to present day you, you touched on at the start that raptors we know historically raptors were very heavily persecuted well anything with a hooked beak or, or you know sharp tooth or claw was persecuted have you noticed a, a change in in persecution of raptors or has it dropped off or increased i think it it's uh, dropped off up until the late 90s or 2000 and then it increased again but i think the increase has been chiefly in the uplands associated with grouse moor obviously there's still some persecution on the low ground as well on certain estates but a lot of estates don't bother but uh, it's the uplands where persecution i think has intensified in recent years hen harry is the main victim of course but also peregrine and golden eagle those suffer and so do gospels if they're in a you know, if there are any locally. So yes, it's, it's increased, I think, yeah. Some people are calling for, obviously, licensing. Some people are calling for a ban on, on grouse shooting. Can you see grouse shooting continue in its current form as it is, or do you think there's going to have to be some, there's going to be some reform? I think there's going to be some reform because there's so much pressure for it at the moment. And it's uh, it, it arose almost entirely over the persecution of raptors. If they'd been a bit easier on the raptors, I don't think this would necessarily have happened. But of course, there are other problems with grouse moor management as well, like occasional burning of peat bogs, which is really quite potentially serious in these days of climate change. But I think that's a much less problem than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. I'd like to see more raptors on, on grouse moors, I must say. Having worked on raptors most of my working life <laughs> and for raptor conservation I'd, I'd really like to see them improve in status in, in the, those upland areas okay so in terms of there's got to be compromise that i mean yeah. they, uh, uh, well hen harriers in particular they are significant predators on grounds so we have to accept that but it's all it all boils down to the density of them at low density they they probably wouldn't have too much of an influence on on the grouse bags but at, once they reach a higher density than they do so is in terms of a brighter future then and this is something we talked about and i know you've you've been involved in a, a small way in a book uh, rebirding uh, by benedict mcdonald um, rewilding you've covered so much on population and and farming and and, and the uplands of birds the most two most recent books where does rewilding sit with you and your your train of thought on well rewilding of course means different things to different people i'm generally in in favor of rewilding uh, but you have to remember if we had rewilding over much of britain we would end up with forest which is fine if it's native forest particularly but the uh, the rewilding i've seen on scottish estates has really been being done very well i think in the, at least the ones I've seen, 
they've removed all the alien conifers, uh, you know, Sitka spruce or lodgepole pine or whatever, and they've gone entirely uh, for native trees. And those estates are looking very good at the moment with Scots pine and birch and of various ages and so on, and big increases in quite a number of bird species, including black game. But the one thing that we've not really been able to do in Britain is introduce some of the big mammals that would have a, an impact on on the uh, on the structure of the woodland and the, the landscape in general. Uh, we can no longer introduce aurochs, of course, because they're no longer with us. But moose, wolf, bear, beaver—we're getting in some areas, and, and a lot of animals that would have been here up to a few hundred years ago in Britain, and one way or another have an impact on the environment themselves, mostly beneficial effects. And uh, I mean, it would be great if we could get back to that stage, but I can't see that happening in, not in my lifetime in Britain. Anyway. But the rewilding I've seen, I'm very much in favor of, and the Nep Castle estate is a fantastic, interesting experiment. I'm pretty sure your books will, will have an influence on people making decisions in the future I know that much okay I'm conscious of time and, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer reading you've given me more than enough I, I always finish with one question so apologies if this seems a bit of a eye roller or, but I think I did warn you about this any budding raptor biologists or people that are tuning into this Dr Ian Newton if you've got one bit of advice for them parting words what what would they be to to a budding raptor biologist or someone interested in birds of prey in nature well there's two two categories one is whether you want to be a sort of academic raptor biologist and make a living doing it then obviously you've got to go to university and get yourself a good degree and a phd uh, to start with uh, if you're interested in raptors as an amateur and want it as a hobby then enjoy it and stick at it i think were the, <laughs> the only things i would say and you're fortunate to have such an interest yeah well I, I mean, you're a great example of sticking at it <laughs> i don't think that could have come from a better authority uh, than that right okay ian um, okay fine thank you so much for okay it's been a pleasure yeah your time okay and, uh, and all the best thank you very much okay bye then we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, why not give us a subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the up-to-date news on what's going on with the world of Birds of Prey and Raptor Aid.